the hardest thing to do is wake up in the morning and do something that no one else cares about apart from you. Not being seen is more devastating than being hated. I think that's also just true of people who are vulnerable in the world. To not be seen is crushing. None of us are islands, and anything that you do is in dialogue and in collaboration with the past. Everything is coming out of something. This is Patrick Waterhouse, an artist, photographer, illustrator, and former editor of Colors magazine, responsible for the iconic survival series during the renaissance of the Italian magazine in the 2010s. My name is Pedro Garcia, and this is Creative Emotion a podcast about creativity. Not a creativity based on formulas, trends, or references, but one that comes from within. From the true expression of our emotions and our individuality. I believe that some questions can reveal our essence, especially those related to the most striking works of art that we have either created or consumed, and those related to the turning points in our journey of artistic evolution. So consider these conversations as an attempt to paint a portrait from these multiple perspectives that can hopefully help us catch a glimpse of our true selves and propel us forward in our journey of self-discovery. Patrick can thoroughly dissect subjects and give us back his perspective, either by an editorial understanding of the contemporary world, like what he did with Colors magazine, or a poetic five-year visual investigation of the colossal building Ponte City in South Africa, or a deep dive in Dante's Inferno to bring a fresh set of images from the classic back to life. And it's always through collaborations that he embarks on these journeys. As he tells us about his first memories of getting in touch with his calling, I started to understand how crucial these partnerships were to overcome his difficulties and how he learned to thrive on the controlled chaos of the creative process. I suppose for me, it's born out of struggling in other domains. I'm very severely dyslexic. I got put back a year at school. I remember when I was very young, becoming aware that I was behind everybody. And in a way, I think actually having options closed down meant that I had a real focus on something that I felt I had agency over and something that I could do. Often I've had friends who are like super smart and could do a million different things and have found it very hard to transition into different stages because they're not sure if they're choosing the right path. But for me, it's always been very clear. It's been the only option. And what about an actual scene of you focusing on something? Doing graffiti with my friends. That was a big thing. Yes, I was in my teens. I feel like the kind of limitations that I felt I had gave me a strong focus on what I felt I could do and an area that I felt I could understand in a way that you make up the rules of what you're doing. I guess drawing a lot. Me and my friend Sam, who lived next door, we drew all of the characters from Labyrinth, the film with David Bowie in, and then we made up a whole load of other characters. Stop. Wait. Look what I'm offering you, your dreams. Would you make a connection between drawing the world or the characters of Labyrinth with you illustrating Dante's Inferno? 
definitely, and certain kind of ways of doing things. Often the work that I do seems confusing to people and doesn't make sense. I describe it as like I do grown-up school projects because I think people understand what a school project is. And essentially it's a passport to explore any subject without an expertise. It's enough in and of itself. What I like about this first question is that sometimes there's a layer of meaning behind the scenes that are brought that reveals a lot about ourselves. So for me, your memory is more about the talent of focusing, not just drawing. And also when you apply that to drawing and your example of the labyrinth, and I even would make a connection with Ponte City as well, which is mapping out universes. And I think that what you did at your time in Colors with the survival guides is trying to map out the world or to map out the doors that were closed. Yeah, there's some truth to that. And it's funny because when I'm thinking of it as a memory is drawing with my friend Sam, who would sit in his bedroom and draw. And I guess one thing I feel aware of is being a very relational person being an artist and having a studio often has a degree of solitude but I think temperamentally I'm someone who basically mediates the world in relationship to other people yeah and I would even say that Sam was your first collaborator yeah because <laughs> it's such a constant in your work right it seems like a state of shared solitude Yeah, yeah, that sometimes when I've given talks or I've used this quote from Iris Murdoch, which is, I don't know what I think until I say it, which really resonated with me. In relationship to what somebody else says, you form your own opinions until you've got something to push up against. You don't really know what you think. So there's a kind of way in which that comes out of conversation because you're actually mediating it through the conversation itself. And then the funny thing is that when I was actually giving this talk and it was being recorded, somebody actually looked up the quotes and I had misquoted it. And it was actually, I don't know what I think until I write it. So I'd got it completely wrong. And it's almost the opposite. It's about actually sitting by yourself and doing this thing that I struggled to do. <laughs> so I um, still believe in my misquotation, but I believe that also gets to what creativity is, which is often misinterpretation. In fact, I think basically that is what kind of human culture is, basically riffing on other things. From the first painting on the cave wall or the first wheel that somebody saw and thought, oh, that's interesting. Essentially, everything is this iterative process. I think Grayson Perry has this line that creativity is mistakes, and I buy that. It really felt like because you said those doors were closed, and I assume it was because of understanding, you had to create your own way of understanding things. Yeah, I don't want to portray it as some woe is me like story of, of hardship. I think about it in relationship to something which is more of a paradox. Making any project is essentially what you look for is a kind of a limitation, which is a parameter, which means that you can create. Limitless possibility is so open-ended that it's not impossible to do anything. Any creation that you make is based on some kind of construction of parameters. 
whether it's a house or a relationship with another human being. It's just working out what that is. Deciding to do anything by definition means that you are deciding not to do something else. <laughs> so like in a way, it kind of mapped out and direction for me quite early on. During this process, I talk to creatives and artists from different backgrounds, cultures, and it's always a part of the process and part of what is revealed here to understand the connections between limitations and creativity because they are really interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have a relationship with limitation that seems very healthy <laughs> and very mature. Well, that's what it probably sounds like. I don't think it's always the case. In a way, I had a very kind of informative experience. This is what you're saying reminds me of. In a, that when I was 17, I was statemented by this psychologist and you do a test. And at the end of it, we had this quite kind of interesting conversation. Basically, he was very open about certain things. It's more common within men than women and the people with the kind of the severity of dyslexia that I had are predominantly men in prison, actually. Obviously, I'm middle class. I'm not in that situation, but it was just more putting on kind of a spectrum, the level of literacy. Often, funnily enough, when you're at art college, everybody like so high prevalent of dyslexia that even my friend who wrote all my essays is dyslexic. But this guy, he said, basically... I came out with the reading age of just below a six-year-old or whatever, and I was 17. And he just said, you know, you find a workaround. He said, you're very severely dyslexic, and you're never going to get to the place you want to be, find a workaround. And that was incredible in terms of giving permission to not bang your head against the brick wall and try and do something that I couldn't do and just try and find a workaround. <laughs> and I think often people hear that and they think that's like limiting in terms of its advice because it's acknowledging a limitation. But for me, it was liberating in a way because I think before then I had been frustrated and been trying to basically do something that I wasn't, I mean, geared up to do. Temperamentally, my form of processing the world wasn't through words and I guess focused on finding workarounds. That's what I was saying. You felt liberated by limitation and it's much more common that people find themselves trapped by it. Yeah, but I don't think that actually when under closer examination is true. Think about anything that you make. All creations are based on whether you want to call them limitations I guess the word limitation is loaded, but essentially it is a limitation where you're deciding to take a picture in black and white. You're deciding to use a rhythm that appears 4-4. All of anything, basically, all structures that are patterns or forms that we understand the world are forms of limitation. I personally think this is a beautiful way of seeing limitation. Because when I say that not everyone has this vision about limitation is that many people do not create, many people do not express themselves, many people are trapped. And of course, you are not like a superhuman without problems, no, <laughs> without emotional problems, but you express yourself, you manage to materialize them. You put your feelings and thoughts into books and magazines and photographs. So you manage to find a way around it. Yeah, yeah I hope so. Most of the time. 
What was the first time your mind was blown by a work of art? A song, a film, a book? For some reason, I'm thinking of being a very small kid and being in the cinema and seeing Pinocchio as an animation. One night, a long time ago, my travels took me to a quaint little village. It was a beautiful night. It's just a very early memory of pictures moving. It probably was mind-blowing. I mean, it still is. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that's coming into my mind is when I was dropping acid when I was you know, a teenager or far too young to be doing that. But I don't think that's right either. <laughs> because words were the doors that trapped you or the limitations, could we say that visual storytelling was the way around it? I guess it's true. I mean, I feel like I've been very blessed in a sense that my mum would always read stories to me and my brother and sister. And the irony is that I listened to a huge amount of audio books and I always have, even back in the day when you had to go and get them out of the library as cassette, these giant chunky boxes of cassettes. So I guess I've always had somebody talking to me, basically. It's always been mediated through another voice. My mom was very good at, you know, she was amazing. She would always read to us as kids. I think my dad is very severely dyslexic as well. He would make up stories though. He would tell these stories about broomstick and green bottle. What I realize now is my dad was drunk because there was always an empty wine bottle called green bottle. Now I remember it slightly differently, but they were essentially would begin making sense, but they were very exciting as a kid. And I think those were two different forms of storytelling. And one is instinctive and the other one is reading from a script. I don't know if that's right. You're just taking me into little bits of memories. <laughs> <laughs> there is a quote from Tolstoy about art, which is, with words, we transmit thoughts. With art, we transmit feelings. It's almost like your intellectual world was not mediated by words. It was mediated by voice. If you think about it, it gives another layer of humanity to the intellectual world because there's someone belonging in this space. So it's a space that normally it's the loneliest of all places, your own inner thoughts. But it's almost like there was always someone with you. So maybe your first collaborators were your mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Definitely true. MESA is a team-based work system designed to solve complex challenges by unleashing human potential to process more and execute faster, a method used by companies like Google Nike, Coca-Cola, and many others to solve challenges for which there are no benchmarks in the world. Find out more at mesa.do or visit mesa.school to learn how to implement it on your routine. Mesa. Work reinvented. What was your most emblematic moment of creative fulfillment when you thought that whatever was inside you was being transformed into artistic expression? It's an interesting one, that, because I think it's something that happens when you're making something. And often I think about things being collaborative. And I think it can happen in a group as well. But often it's not when it's interfacing with the world. 
it's when you feel like it's clicked into place and there's something that is working and you have suddenly confidence in an idea. I think in every project I have made, every bit of work that I've made, it's often a moment, an idea which unlocks lots of other parts of what a project is. And there's kind of something euphoric about that and also very powerful. But when you go further down the process and you're putting it out into the world, doubt and insecurity and all of these other things come in. But I think there is a part of making, I talk about channeling the spirits. I'm not religious. <laughs> feel like, you know, like it's kind of almost outside of you. And funnily enough, it can kind of crop up in an interesting way where I think something in your subconscious connects with something that you're seeing in that moment. I think of it with everything, the idea of using the vernacular of a survival guide and then suddenly being able to envision that. I actually was listening to an audio book about architecture and I had this quote from Le Corbusier about the apertures of a building defining a space. And we were working in this building in Johannesburg that's obviously a 54-story building and trying to tell this story. And that term suddenly translated into images. So I sketched out basically a grid of taking a picture out of every window and you see the internal space and the external space. And in a way it clicked and you can see what it's going to be. And there's this kind of confidence in that. And it's almost euphoric, <laughs> basically. And I think when an idea is landed in your mind and you're working with someone else and you both lock onto it and you're both understanding and seeing what this thing, the potential of what something is and can be. And that is like you, you suddenly have the key. And I think those are the most fulfilling kind of moments in a sense. And I think often more fulfilling in some ways than when you're putting work out into the world and weirdly throws up quite a lot of complicated feelings. The completion of something, which should be the high point, often there's a bit of a crash in it. For me at least, and I think for when I see lots of friends, what would be perceived as the highest point is often the point at which people suddenly think, is this, it's, what was that? I guess it's a cliche, but it's the journey. And sometimes you think that you're just pushing to complete something. That obviously is a form of satisfaction in having finished something, but there's also loss. I probably have a problem with this. The projects I do go on for years and years, so I don't know when to draw a line. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not that cliche because I actually ask this question to a lot of artists and everybody has a different answer. Some people, for example, the creative fulfillment is when they show it to the world. Yeah, to me, that seems like it would be the most logical. There's sometimes people that it's about the completion. For some people, it is when they realize the work is changing people's lives. So there are all the parts of the process. Some people connect to it. Some people is when yeah. they find an idea or they begin a project. If I miss the beginning of your explanation, it's almost like an epiphany coming from a hallucinogenic <laughs> trip <laughs> of clarity. There is a kind of latent potential when ideas are a process. And there's a, people often think that creativity is just this free-flowing thing. But I think lots of it is actually amazingly administrative, even painting. There's a process of mixing or whatever it is. There's 
technical processes that are not that kind of uh, antithetical to what people imagine this kind of fluid process is. But there is obviously a point of having an idea or of having a vision of what something can be. And I think that is probably what is very fulfilling. For me, obviously, it is fulfilling to get recognition, but it often has always been wrapped up in a whole load of other complexities interfacing with the world. It often comes with a whole load of other things. What was the worst thing that happened or that you have heard from someone along your path that could almost have made you give up? I suppose the answer to that is another one of my lines that I definitely have said to students when I've been teaching and stuff, which I think is particularly true for making art, but it's less true of other kind of design practices and kind of things which are commissioned. But I feel like the hardest thing to do is wake up in the morning and do something that no one else cares about apart from you. It goes against basically us as tribal animals, which we are as humans, because we exist within the pack and you are just going off your own path. It's almost psychopathic to just do something that no one else in the world is asking you to do. The relief I have when I'm doing something with someone else is huge. The thing that you have to wrap your head around is that you have to do something that no one else gives a fuck about apart from you. And maybe if you're lucky, someone else will care about it. But for many, for a long period of time, it's just you. And I think more than any ability or talent, I think people's capacity to do that is the determining factor of making it. Because I think that many of us will do anything if it's asked by someone else and are driven, but it's something to do with where people's psyche is. I don't think I've answered your question there. <laughs> In relationship to what you said, I think the most devastating thing that anybody has said is nothing. And I think that speaks to the other kind of pitfall that I think you have to deal with people feeling incredibly indifferent about what you're doing and not answering. And that's very brutal. People not being seen is more devastating than being hated. It's something people suffer with across the arts, that basically they make something and nobody else in the world cares about it and they're indifferent. I think that's also just true of people who are vulnerable in the world. To not be seen is crushing. I heard Marlon James, the Jamaican novelist who won the Booker Prize, and I think it's 75 times or something he sent out his manuscripts. I loved his book as well that won the Booker Prize, but the fact that he sent it out so many times and just dealt with that much rejection, I think it's another one of those interesting dividing lines which speaks to the fact that there are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of masterpieces that will never see the light of day because people don't have that mentality. It's easy to give that advice, but it's very hard to take it because it's hard to deal with a huge amount of projection. 
what was the most important thing that, on the contrary, has helped you in a moment of doubt? There's something that um, preventative. When I'm talking to friends about this, I call them the occupational hazards of being an artist. Because I think that some things are born out of the temperament of certain people to be very self-absorbed. So they're attracted to art, but I think other people almost fall into kind of creative pursuits and suddenly they feel very exposed and it leads them to be very inward looking and self-obsessed in my projects. And I think that is psychologically very unhealthy. I consciously spend a lot of time helping other people with things that they're doing and just get out of my own head and will try and very genuinely help with what someone else is dealing with, whether that's on a personal level or whether it's to do with work or whatever it is. It goes back to the way in which I relate to the world. They say that some people almost get drained when they spend too much time with other people and other people are energized by it. I'm definitely the latter. I'm someone who, if I am in the tunnel, I need my friends and my people around. And often what I need is to do something which isn't about my work. And I need to just be doing something that is trying to be with what someone else is trying to deal with. What advice would you give yourself when you were beginning, not in terms of career, but in terms of expressiveness? So, in other words, what have you learned along the way about how to get in touch creatively with your internal material? I don't know whether I would tell younger Patrick or I just reflect on something that I think is an interesting kind of a hack, but it's also more profound than that. I think often being a translator goes down to this kind of idea of iteration that I was saying before and hearing something and then imagining that thing as an image or you could look at a painting and suddenly it could spark an idea for a, a novel or whatever it is. The kind of translation into another medium is already kind of an alchemy in that process. And I think it's particularly powerful when you're dealing in the realm of ideas or hearing, trying to get to the essence of an idea and think about how you put that into a visual form. Or at least that's something that I feel like in a way is the practice in some way. What is the most important book in your life? The first thing that comes to my mind is George Orwell as an author, generally. But I guess if I get down to a specific book, you know, what happens when you say these questions, in a way it gets me into a really meditative state. It's like a brain freeze. Well, <laughs> there's nothingness. It's like I need to channel this, you know. I feel like there's so many. I mean, there is a book that actually one of the guys I collaborate with did this work in South Africa. We did, we did Ponty together. And when we were doing that, he read me out loud this book. It's called Portrait with Keys by Ivan Vladislavich. And it's a book that you can read it through different threads. It's essentially a series of vignettes that are in this interlinking narrative. It's about Johannesburg, but it's about everything. 
It is a very beautifully written, but also profound book describing how he passes through life and navigates various complexities. I would make a connection with this book and the way you were <laughs> answering, because it's almost like what fascinates you is the complexity of understanding things and looking at something and always finding a new perspective. So I think your trouble with saying one Orwell book is literally this reflected in your process of making this choice. <laughs> well, it's something I often worry about. But also, I think it's all often where kind of ideas come out, where you're just constantly going on digressions. I say one thing to you and it triggers off a thought in another direction. Or you ask me a question and it triggers a thought that's one step removed. And it means that you can have kind of very tangential conversations which kind of weave around the place and go in, in various different places and spaces. Yeah, exactly. So you're almost like describing the book. <laughs> yeah. I was about to close the interview, but it's funny how this is the opposite of focus that you said it was your ability of choosing, your ability of focus, ability of limitation. I think that part of the attraction to it is that I am very unfocused in a sense and free associating, which means that I am attracted to ways of making sense of the world. But I don't think that's how I am as a person. <laughs> There is, I think it's a Keats poem. I'm kind of probably kind of, because I've heard somebody else reading it and then I'm paraphrasing, so I might have this wrong, but I think it's <laughs> wisdom is a butterfly, not a gloomy bird of prey. And I feel definitely more like the butterfly than the bird of prey going from one to another. And I think that is both powerful in terms of getting you to places in terms of ideas, but you can also become quite unstuck and struggle to track your way back. So often I think within the work that I've made, it's creating a framework. I also think that often everything that people do in a form is kind of sense-making and pattern recognition. So you're coming up with some form of making sense in the world. With this kind of approach, it's almost like you managed to find a way to collaborate with yourself <laughs> internally. I mean, I think we're all doing that, you know. Not everyone. <laughs> well, I guess maybe they are, but they're just not acknowledging it. There's a deeper belief that I have that I think that essentially none of us are islands. And anything that you do is in dialogue and in collaboration with the past. Everything is coming out of something. Anybody who thinks that they are just being completely original and are not formed by the world is kind of hubris. And that's what I mean about it. It's a belief that I have that goes deeper than I think is a fundamental truth. In this conversation with Patrick, we talked about how since childhood, he was very aware of his limitations due to severe dyslexia. But this limitation allowed him to focus, especially on his visual explorations. Visual language became a tool to make sense of the world, something that could expand his consciousness, like a mind-altering substance. And usually for him, these explorations were through partnerships. For Patrick, the consumption and production and expression of art are intrinsically connected to human exchange. Be it in the way he reads books or actually listens to books or stories, 
mediated by his parents or audiobook narrators, or when he's helping others materialize their ideas. Theoretically, everyone is trying to make sense of the world, but not everyone manages to materialize this craving into the creative work as Patrick does. And the world for him, and the understanding of it, only makes sense if it's done collectively. With Patrick, I learned that creativity can be structured precisely on a lack of structure, of a constant process of misinterpretation and collision of ideas, of embracing and accepting limitations and finding workarounds. And I learned that exploring a subject without any expertise is a perfect start to trigger this fruitful process. You can find more about Patrick's latest project, Restricted Images, and all his work at his website, patrickwaterhouse.com. You can find the link for it in the episode's description. If you like this podcast, you can follow, review, and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. If you think someone might like the kind of reflections we make here, share this podcast with them. You can visit our website at creativeemotion.art, where you can join our mailing list and find extra information and resources. You've just listened to Creative Emotion. The soundtrack you're listening was composed specially for this podcast by multi-instrumentalist and producer Lucas Vasconcelos. Vitor Marques was the editor and Perola Matias was the story editor for this episode. I am Pedro Garcia. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.